Grace and mercy and peace be with you, my friends, in Christ from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus. Amen. Those of you who try your best to live moral lives according to the scriptures and Christian teaching may find yourself often looking at the world in which we live saying, how in the world did we get here? And how did things get to be so immoral? And I'll just tell you, guess what? Things have always been this way. (laughs) We're going to find out even more about that and what the Apostle Paul says today in 1 Corinthians. We're continuing this sermon series called One for All, All for One. We started it on Easter under the realization that Jesus is the one who has won all things for all people. And we are looking at the letter called 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, realizing under Paul's teaching that we all collectively as the church are one gathered together under his purpose and in his name. Today we're zeroing in on chapters 5 through 7 that contain many practical issues revolving around morality and immorality. And we're calling today's sermon, therefore, all for one, morality. I've often heard Christian people speak about something that has been popularly called the moral compass. A moral compass. And when I hear Christian people say this, I I think what they mean is that they believe that God's Word is their guide, their compass, a tool, something given to them to guide them in life to make the decisions that are right and not wrong. Seems to be an appropriate image for Christian people who trust in God's Word. However, for those who are secularists, uh, those who claim no religious authority, claim that there is no God, there really is, if you think about it, no moral compass. For the secularist that desires moral living, they really say that there is one of two options where morality comes from. If you do not have a God, where do, where, do, where do morals come from? They'll say one of two things. One is a collective societal morality. They will say, well, society in which you live determines what the morals of the society are. And we trust that society eventually will get it right, they would say. Well, societies change right? And societies are different throughout the world. So the question then becomes, do morals change with society? I mean, what if the society ended up saying that it was good for secularists to all be imprisoned? Would a secularist then say that the society has developed a good moral? (laughs) So there's a collective kind of idea that maybe society shapes morals. The other is that morals are shaped by the individual. And this stems from some people thinking that individuals are inherently good. 
and that given the chance, individuals will make good decisions. So they will say that, you know, as long as I make good decisions, good moral decisions, and you make good moral decisions, you can do whatever you want to do and shape your morals, but I get to shape mine, and they're, they're, they're different. We, we all individually have our own morals. But if, if that's the case, then many systems break down. Take, for instance, our justice system. How could the justice system still stand if it's based on individualistic morals? How could a judge say anything to a criminal about their criminal or immoral behavior if the criminal and the judge get to determine what is good moral behavior. So both the societal morals and the individualistic morals, when closely scrutinized, neither of them hold water. And so many secularists in our culture, I've heard them say, simply not really claiming either of those, just saying, as a secularist, do you not see that I can live a good moral life. I don't need a God to tell me what to do. I've heard people say this. And frankly, should we believe that people who don't believe in God are capable of living good moral lives? Yeah, they can, actually. I actually know many people who do not believe in Jesus and claim that there is no God who are wonderful people, kind, loving, decent people. But from a scriptural perspective, we should understand that that can be true. Because here's what we have in the scriptures. Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33 says this. God says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is what we believe. This is what we confess to be true in the Scriptures. God has written His law on the hearts of all people, those who confess Him and those who deny Him. God's law is still written on the hearts of all people. So, whenever anyone is living a good, decent, moral life, guess what we believe? That God is at work even in the lives of those who do not confess Him or believe in Him. God is at work. God is always at work in the lives of all people. So this we know. We know this. The law is written on the hearts of all people. However, the hearts of humanity are also not pure. They're not good. They are not inherently good. They are inherently sinful, by nature sinful and unclean. God created humanity to be good. Adam and Eve were good, perfectly good. But when they chose self over God, that's when all things changed because they chose self, and so do we. So no person, no human is capable of living a good moral life all of the time because our lives and our hearts are inherently sinful. This is how the scripture speaks about this all over the place, but I'll share three. Psalm 14, 3 says this, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful 
above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And finally, the Apostle Paul himself in Romans 7 says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So here's the reality that we have as people who live in this world. We believe that our hearts have God's law written on them. Within us, we by nature get a a sense of what good moral behavior is because God has written that in us. However, there is a battle that wages within us because our hearts and our minds are not pure. They are sinful and corrupt and selfish. So the battle that wages within us is one that moves back and forth between having our hearts and minds align with the moral character of a good God and having our hearts and minds align with our sinful, selfish flesh. And that battle wages within us. Now let's get back and dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 5 for 7, all for one, morality. We're, we're dealing with uh, 1 Corinthians in sections, sometimes one chapter a week, sometimes three or four chapters a week. And this week we're grouping together chapters 5 through 7 under this theme, all for one, morality. And I'm going to zero in just on one specific area of chapter 6. I can't handle all of this today, Uh, but just really quickly, chapter 5 deals with a very particular issue going on in the church in Corinth. There was a man in that church who had an adulterous relationship with his father's wife. Not his mom, but like his stepmom. And so Paul says, this is not good So Paul has to address that man and that woman, but also the whole church collective. Paul is pretty frustrated with them because the whole church didn't do anything to instruct that man or to discipline him. So that's kind of what chapter 5 is about, a very particular issue. And then chapter 7 deals with the matters of marriage and celibacy, singleness. And he gets into when marriage is good for certain people and when singleness is good for certain people. And so if you're curious about those kinds of things and what role they play in the Christian church, it it has some good practical wisdom, um, but also needs to be understood kind of contextually of what the people are dealing with in Corinth at that time. In chapter 6 today, uh, we're going to paint with a big broad brush stroke. When dealing with morality and immorality, again, Paul is, Paul is really talking about sexual immorality here. However, we're going to paint with a broad brush stroke. I'm, I'm not going to go through lists of potential immoral behaviors and give you a green light or red light on whether or not it's okay to do these behaviors, as fun as that may be to do. Maybe we can have that conversation some other time. Uh, but today, we're going to simply look at Um, bigger questions such as why would we desire to live a moral life according to the scriptures and how do we go about doing that? Because the context Paul sets here in chapter 6 sets the stage for a lot of the issues that we're going to see coming up in subsequent chapters. Here's what Paul says to set the stage, uh, chapter 6 verse 12. He says, all things are lawful 
for me. All things are lawful for me. This was a common phrase in the Corinthian church and in the community. Maybe you would see it hanging on neon signs as you're driving down the highway. All things are lawful for me. But what they meant by this in the Christian church was that they were claiming they had Christian liberty, Christian freedom, basically saying we are not bound by God's Old Testament laws anymore. We are free in Christ. And if we are free in Christ, then we can basically do whatever we want. And maybe they even would have tagged on to the end, and if we mess up, we know Jesus will forgive us anyways. <laughs> All things are lawful for me. It was a cultural slogan in Corinth at the time. We have cultural slogans like this as well. Take, for example, YOLO. I know some of you are cringing when I say YOLO because I am not cool enough and I'm too old to say things like that. But YOLO, this phrase, stands for you only live once, right? Which basically means give it a try. What's the harm? What's the big deal? You got you to gotta live. Try it. See what it's like. You only live once. And if, like me, you're too old to say this phrase or too cool, you've probably also said other things similar such as carpe diem, <laughs> seize the day. When in Rome, what happens in Vegas? In the Corinthian church, the Christian people were claiming liberty, freedom. We have it in Christ. And Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, well, he agrees with them to a degree. Paul says, yes, you are right. You have Christian liberty. You are free people. You are not bound by the Mosaic law. You are not saved to eternal life based on your ability to keep a set of laws. That is true. Nor are you condemned based on your inability to keep the law. Take the adulterous woman, for example, in the gospel lesson. Jesus said, I do not condemn you. Right? We are not saved based on our ability to keep the law, nor condemned based on our inability to keep the law. Paul says, you are right. All things technically are lawful for you. However, however, not all things are beneficial. So, Paul, are you saying that there's a limit to this liberty? Yes, there is. There's a limit to our liberty. Because not all things are beneficial. Consider this. Your immoral actions, your immoral actions that you take are most often, I would say all the time, not beneficial. They're not beneficial for you because immorality corrupts your mind and your heart, therefore your life. Many people will claim, especially societally, and I've heard Christian people say, but this immoral action didn't hurt anybody. It didn't harm anybody. It was just me. Well, guess what? Even your secret immoral activity harms other people. 
because your secret immoral activity corrupts your mind and your heart, therefore your life. Guess where you take your life? In relationship with other people. So if you are living as a corrupt, immoral, secretive person in relationship with others, your relationships are also harmed. It's not beneficial. So Paul is saying, sure, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. So flee from immorality, run away from it because it's not good. Your liberty is limited. And that's not the only way it's limited, Paul says. He says, again, all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated. What does this mean? Paul is saying if you do something immoral and you become a slave to it, that is not good. You should be a slave to Christ, not a slave to your immorality. And guess what? Immorality is slavery because immorality is addictive and addiction is slavery. Therefore, if you are addicted to immoral behavior, you are a slave to it. So Paul says, flee from it, run away from it, and run to Christ. It's not good. So back to what Paul is saying, to sum it up, he says, sure, all things are lawful for you, technically. Technically, your morality will not save you. Only Jesus will save you by grace through faith. And your immorality will not condemn you. But that's not the end. Again, if your immorality is not beneficial, if it affects other people, don't do it. If you become a slave to it, don't do it. So how should we be thinking about this morality thing then? Why should we be moral people? I want to reframe this for us because a lot of people when thinking about moral decisions have a selfish mindset. Here's what I mean. Most people when considering moral activity If they're Christian people, most people think of it like this. They think of that checklist. They think, God, is it okay if I do this? (laughs) These are the questions I get as pastor. (laughs) Is it okay? Is this one okay? What about this one? Is that okay? So many of us think of it like that, and some other people on the other extreme think, God, I want to live a moral life so I make you happy. Or I want to live a moral life just so I don't make you mad. But neither of these things get to the fullest extent about why we would live moral lives. I want to reframe this for you today. And to do so, we're going to look at Paul's words. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know? Do you not know this? Have I not told you already that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? within you, which you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Honor God. Glorify Him in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul is speaking about the body, he's not just speaking materialistically. He's not just speaking about your flesh and bones. He's speaking about your whole humanity as body, soul, mind, wholeness of you. He's saying your whole body matters. The way you think matters. The what you look at matters. What you say matters. The way you live your life matters because your bodies matter. 
And this is really the basis for the case Paul will make throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians. He's going to say your body matters. It's going to come to a head in 1 Corinthians 15 when talking about the resurrection from the dead. But as Paul deals with specific issues in Corinth, it comes back to this. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in you. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, for the Jewish people, the temple in Jerusalem was the place where God promised to show up for people, where they could meet Him and experience Him. It was located in that physical structure. But now Paul says, in Christ, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge paradigm shift. God is not located to a physical structure, but He's located within you, God Almighty, the Creator, the One who speaks and stuff appears, dwells in you. Consider this reality. If that's true, if your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that means God is with you wherever you are. Even when you are on your own, you're never really on your own. Therefore, when you're on your own and you claim that those immoral things that you want to do on your own don't affect anybody, guess what? God is with you there in that moment. This reality ought to shape how you are on your own because you're never really alone. You're with the Almighty. And also the fact that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit ought to affect the way that you are when you're around other people because they ought to see Jesus in you. You better look like a temple of the Holy Spirit in the way you conduct yourself, the way you speak, the way you live, the way you you act, you should represent the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit lives within you. Here's an imperfect image, but I find it to be helpful. Consider our church building, for example. Our church building, we try our best to have it be known in the community that this is a church, (laughs) okay? That that this is a, a place that was built by Christian people for Christian purposes of fellowship, of worship, and to be a mission outpost into the community with the light and love of Jesus. So we keep the place looking as best as we can. We tend to it. We try to keep the landscaping looking nice. We paint fresh lines in the parking lot. We try to keep it clean and orderly. Why? Because we want it to represent who we are, but even more than that, who we worship. Right? We want people to know that this is a church, that Jesus is proclaimed here. And that's the representation to the world, but what happens within the walls of this building? Well, we, we do rent this place out to other groups and outside organizations, but we are choosy and selective about how we do that. We're not going to host an atheistic convention in this place or have the satanic church come and worship here. Why? Because what we do within this place affects the way that we are. We want people to know this is a church. 
Consider your body, what you consume, what you allow in. How does it look? What's happening in your mind and your heart? And how do you represent Jesus to the world? Friends, your life was purchased with a price. That price was Jesus who laid down his life for you. He died and he rose again. He purchased you. God purchased and won you back from sin and immorality, from Satan, from death. You have been purchased not with gold or silver, but with Jesus' holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. You have been purchased with a price. You are forgiven. You are free people. You have been set free from slavery to immorality and set free to live as Christ in this world. And God has chosen to locate himself within you. I would encourage you to notice God's activity in your life. Not that you need to invite him in, he's already there, but to ask him to open up your mind and your heart to receive him not to fight against him and i truly believe that the more that you allow god in the less you will ask selfish questions such as god would it be okay if i just tried that one thing and the more that you will ask questions like god how are you with my body God, I want to honor you with, with my body. My, my body's your temple. Thank you for coming and being present with me. Watch over me and guide me. Let, let me honor you in this world. Let me represent you, Jesus, to the world. And I believe that when you do that, that he will change your heart to his heart. He will change your mind to his mind. He will change your desires to his desires. In Jesus' name, amen.